even when I was in advertising and I was trying to be a freelance writer and launch my writing career and get into travel, like editorial jobs, I used to feel like, like I was wasting my time. Like I'm not a real writer. I'm not a real editor. I'm not a real journalist because I have a nine to five job at an advertising firm. And I felt crappy about it. And it took me such a long time to realize that it's because of that job It's because of the regular paycheck and the benefits and the health insurance that I got from that job that I was even able to become a freelance writer and pursue these passions. So that's something that like, I feel like especially young people who listen to this need to realize that you, you make your life so much harder when you just throw yourself into whatever it is you're passionate about and expect it to pay your bills and get you health insurance and cover the rent. It may not work that way. And that's okay. It's okay to have a nine to five or to bartend or to do whatever it takes to support yourself while you're building this passion. That's what it means to hustle. Welcome to the Travel Media Lab podcast. I'm your host, Yulia Denisiuk, an award-winning travel photographer and writer, entrepreneur, community builder, and a firm believer that every one of us can go after the stories we've always wanted to tell with the right support, encouragement, and structure. I'm on a mission to help women's storytellers everywhere break into and thrive in the travel media space. If you're ready to ditch your fears to the side, grow your knowledge and confidence, and publish your travel stories, you're in the right place. Let's go. Welcome back, everyone, to season seven of our podcast. I hope you rested well, traveled well, and are now ready to get back into the wonderful world of storytelling in travel media. I, for one, have a pretty astonishing travel schedule this fall. I have just gone through an assignment trip in Black Forest, Germany. Stay tuned for an episode dedicated to this assignment entirely. That's coming up. A scouting shoot in Kazakhstan, where I was born, which I'm pretty excited about. A speaking gig at a conference in Poland and an assignment in Austria. So if you're listening to this episode live in the beginning of October, I'm sending you hugs from the Austrian Alps. But this is not the end of my journey. After Austria, I'm going to Jordan to do a shoot for Getty, then Barcelona for another assignment and possibly an assignment in the UAE before I return to Chicago this November. But back to our podcast. Every season, I think long and hard about what interesting, unique episodes we can bring to our listeners. Shout out to my amazing podcast producer and friend, Noelia Sanchez, who is always there brainstorming with me during our chats. And so I'm so excited to bring you a mini series this season we're calling Editor Insights. In this two-part series that we're kicking off today, we're going to hear from all the amazing travel editors who have come to our podcast over the last six seasons and shared their wisdoms with us. Working with editors is an integral part of being a travel photographer and writer, and it's the part I love so much, from pitching and developing angles to submitting drafts and incorporating their feedback, which always or most of the time makes the story better. I love every part of interacting with editors. And editors, they have a lot to say. They work with writers and photographers on a daily basis, and they have observed so many lessons that they're going to share with us in this two-part mini-series. In today's episode, we're going to hear from three veterans in the travel media industry. 
Ashley Halpern, editor-at-large for Afar, contributing editor to Condé Nast Traveler and the New York Times, and the founding editor of The Urbanist, a pop-up travel blog from New York Magazine. Nikki Vargas, commissioning editor at Photos Travel, the founding editor of Unearth Women magazine, and a travel writer and author who's been featured in Vice, Food and Wine, and more publications. And last but not least, Ashley Halligan, the founder of Pilgrim magazine, who's also been published in places like Backpacker and Alaska magazine. These three women have an incredible wealth of experience in travel media, and in today's episode, you're going to hear their advice for beginners, what they look for in the pitch, why uh, they think rejection is not the end of the world and what to do about it, and the most important quality of a person they want to work with. We also discuss storytelling, finding your niche, demanding better pay, and what it means to hustle as a freelancer. It is such an incredible conversation, and I hope you enjoy hearing from these three editors as much as I do. And if anything that you'll hear today resonates particularly well, be sure to go and check out full episodes with each of these editors where they go even deeper into their path to where they are today. We will be linking the links to those episodes in the show notes as well. And in the second part of this two-part Editor Insights mini-series out next time, you're going to hear from Sarah Khan, Editor-in-Chief for Condé Nast Traveler Middle East, and Lauren Keith, Assigning Editor at Lonely Planet. All right, let's get started. Something that I tell anyone um, who is an aspiring freelancer or already out there in the trenches There's just so much information you're not getting when you get a rejection. And that's because most editors at this point in particular are just spread too thin to really break down all the reasons that idea didn't work for a publication. It very rarely is that your idea is terrible. There are terrible ideas out there. (laughs) But so often, I mean, they could already have something similar in a lineup. That could be a weird quirk of the editor-in-chief or an executive editor. They just don't like X type of stories. Mm -hmm. Um, It could be... I think one thing that I've seen so many great story ideas get killed over is the art and photo team doesn't like it. And that more than ever now in this Instagram era where it's visuals first, they wield a lot of control and a lot of power. And if they don't believe in the visual potential of your story, it's dead in the water at a lot of Mm. publications. And that as as someone who's been both writer and editor is insanely frustrating. At the same time, I also get it because I have to think visually too for a lot of the social media work I do and how are these stories going to translate to a digital audience versus a print audience. There's just so many issues at play and and people, you have to be really persistent. And especially now that freelance budgets have been iced in so many places, um, especially now that staffs are whittled down to skeletal teams. Um, You before had people already doing two or three people's jobs. Now they might be doing four or five. So it's tough. But like, if you, if you know in your heart that your idea is good, it's a matter of finding the right outlet, the right publication and one that will pay you fairly for it. I love that you say that. And coming from an editor, it's incredible to hear that, that idea of being paid fairly. If you've been in the industry for a while, you know, all these kind of for stories of really low pays for really high amount of work. And it's definitely tough. So I, I just love so much that you brought that up as well. And what you said about this idea of thinking visually for the for this age of 
incessant social media that we're in. That kind of actually brings me to my second question that I had about this, which was you went through that uh, incredible turmoil, right? When, When the magazine industry first transitioned from mostly print to this digital space in which it's like a wild west of publishing. So are there some things that you've learned in that transition? Yeah, it's tough. I think a lot of people still glorify print. And I get that. It feels like you're creating something that you can hold in your hands that can live on a shelf. And I still do quite a bit of print work. But I love writing for digital. (laughs) I love how fast it is, how you don't have to come up with an idea. Like, how do you right now pitch a magazine that is coming out in January, February, 2021? Like what? Like, we don't even know what is going to happen next week in this crazy country, in this crazy world, let alone know what the environment's going to be six months from now. So I really love the immediacy of digital. I'm not a news writer. I'm not one of those news hounds that's like firing off six stories a day in response to every little thing that happens. But I do love that I can report a story now and have it live within two or three weeks. I would say that if you're looking for mentors and you're looking for that sort of line editing and feedback, you don't get that as much in digital. Very often I file pieces and other than maybe getting trimmed down or heads index changes, it publishes online the way that I filed it. Whereas print stories go through so much more massaging, so many more editors weighing in on it, photo and art teams telling you, no, we we need this (laughs) photo to be three quarter of the page. So what was assigned at 700 words suddenly shrinks to 250. I definitely, I, they're just totally different skill sets. And I think a lot of magazines have done a good job of breaking down the wall between web and print, but the teams still aren't thoroughly integrated. You still have dedicated print people, dedicated web people. And, and unfortunately, the rates haven't followed. And I think that's a huge problem. You still have writers earning two, sometimes three dollars, uh, five if they're a really big name, a word for print magazines, and then web people being told, oh, we pay three cents a word. And it's like, no, because the amount of work is the same and the quality of the writers is often the same. And that to me is infuriating and something you have to buck and goes back again to this idea. If you don't demand your worth, no one's going to give it to you. And I totally get, especially new writers, feeling like they just need to be, get clips and they just want to get their name out there so they write for next to nothing. But it does undercut the value of the entire business and everything we do. And it, when people get accustomed to thinking they get something for free or get it for cheap, we're dismantling our own business and livelihood. So charge, charge your worth. <laughs> I love that, Ashley. I love so much that you brought this up because this is a huge issue for so many people, especially for women. This is a hard issue, right? To be asking your worth and to believe that you have intrinsic value that you can ask to be paid accordingly for. This was a big thing that I have been working on for the past four years, because when I was starting out, I was definitely one of those people that no matter what, I will take it if it's three cents a word, like you said. And it's an evolution and it's a journey, I think, to to start believing that you are worth being paid more. I think we all have to demand uh, better pay, but at the same time, it's hard to do that when your mindset and your 
all own internal beliefs are not there yet to be able to ask for that. I've met a lot of women who are struggling with that and who don't even have that internal belief that they're able to ask for more. Now, when I'm working with editors and when I'm pitching stories before, what I would used to do is when they would come back to me with their rates, I would just always take it no matter what it was. And now when, you know, when the editor sends you, okay, we'll take your story. Here's the budget. Here's what we can do. I always ask them, well, here's my usual rate. Can you meet that? You know, and there's a way to do that. That's polite and professional, but It's taken me four years to get to this point. So I guess what I'm trying to say that it's a journey. It's it's an evolution. Uh, And if somebody's not able to ask for their worth right away, there's some things that they need to work through first in order to get there. Absolutely. And I don't mean, it's not like I was writing $2 a word stories out of college. Not at all. Like I used to write for um, Bitch Magazine and Punk Planet. And like, I'm not even sure I ever got paid. I probably did, but it would be like $5 for a feature story or something. Um, you, it definitely comes with time. It comes with experience. It comes with getting your name out. It, it comes with building relationships with editors. So they know your work. They know the quality of your reporting. They know you're going to turn it in on time. They know it'll be clean. That it'll be factually correct. Your whole goal as a freelancer is to like make your editor's life easier if and I think not enough people just that's worth paying for it it really is and and my dad always said to me he's you can get it done well or you can get it done cheap but you can't get both and I say a version of that to places and I do walk away from projects that I really want to do because I don't think that they're fairly compensated and Mm -hmm. it that's a hard thing to do when it when we're in a depression and a pandemic um but you have to know your own value and stand by it. And I, and I find that for the most part, people respond to that. They're like, mm-hmm. oh, she must be good then. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and and very oftentimes they will come back with a counteroffer. It may not be exactly what you want, but it'll definitely better be better than what it was. Yes, exactly. And that's that's what's been happening to me as well lately, which is so exciting. I just want to just comment real quick on what you said about making an editor's life easier. I, I love that you said that because the people who are listening and who have taken my courses will be laughing right now because this is exactly what I say in all of my courses. Guys, you have to understand how tricky the editor's job is and how overwhelmed and swamped they are most of the time right now. And so if there is a way you can make their job easier, this is in a way, this is your assignment too, right? You, you, yes, you have to bring them great stories that fit with their magazine and with the vision and all of that. But if you can make their job easier, even just a little bit, then that's, that's what they're looking for. And they'll be so grateful to you for that because it is a hard job. Yeah. And it's the little things too. Like, you know, you're already deep in the weeds on your story. If you can come up with some heads and decks, just throw like five head ideas and, and write a great deck. When you know if it's a web story and you know they're going to need to hyperlink 12 different things in your story, put in the hyperlinks. Don't make them go hunting for that stuff. Make it as seamless as possible and make yourself indispensable. When I think of Yulia, I'm like, okay, this is not going to take up half a day of having to rewrite someone. I just know it'll be good. It'll be clean. It'll be factually correct. That's what you want an editor to think about when they hear your name. Absolutely. Absolutely. And just for clarification, heads and decks are 
Oh, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> so, yes, I can explain that. So a head is a headline on a story. Mm-hmm. And the mm-hmm. deck is usually the bit of copy um, that runs underneath it. It's it, in some magazines that don't have a lot of display copy, which is the main uh, copy you read on the page before you get to the body copy, which really jumps into a story. It might be really short. It could be a one sentence deck. Some places do longer decks could be two or three and sometimes even a deep paragraph to set up the story ahead. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Awesome. And so do you have any advice for women who are just starting out on this path now in this crazy year and have aspirations to break into the travel industry or the journalism industry at large? Any advice you have besides don't get in? <laughs> Look, I think... Um... No, no one should be fooled to think that this is a super stable or lucrative career because it's not for most people. And I also do a lot of commercial content work. Some of that is far better paid than traditional editorial. That's just two hats that most people I know in this industry wear now. Um, so I do think being open-minded to all the different ways that your skill set can be used is important. Look, if you want to be a hard news reporter for the New York Times, then, then chase that dream. But if you want to be freelance, it's a little harder to do strictly editorial and make any real lucrative kind of money. Um, but I, I think, you know, if you're just starting out, find a niche. That's the most important thing. And if you can be even more specific than just travel. Oh, I want to do travel, mm-hmm. right? What is it about travel that you really love? Are you obsessed with planes? Are you obsessed with points and mileage collecting? Are you obsessed with cruising? Are you obsessed with uh, environmental and eco-friendly places? Like figure out what, are you obsessed with pets, traveling with pets? If you can develop a niche and become known for that, I think that's one of the easiest ways to break in now. And you start by, you have to have some published work that an editor can look at. You can send them the best idea in the world. They're going to want to see your style of writing. They're going to want to get a sense for your voice. So even if that means launching your own platform or setting up a Medium account or Substack or whatever it is you want to do, um, have those what we call clips. They used to be actual printed clips, but now digital is completely fine and frankly easier. No one wants to like download your uh, nine, 9 billion gigabyte attachments. Um, so to develop a niche and just who cares if people say no, don't ever not pitch someplace because you're afraid they're going to say no. So what if they say no? Okay. On to the next thing. Like just keep for, for every, I would say for every 20 pitches I put out in the world, maybe two get assigned. So what? I don't take it personally. It's just how it goes. And you have to be really, if anything, it can be exhausting. The idea generation It's kind of part, just part of the game that we're all playing. But a lot of times the pitches you come up with, you can repurpose somewhere else. So if you believe in something, never let it just die on the vine. Keep searching for that right home. It's out there. You just have to find it. Oh, Ashley, I love that so much, so (laughs) much. And this is also the advice that I give in the courses that I teach and all of the work that we're doing. Exactly what you're saying, right? Keep pitching, keep finding home for your ideas keep believing uh, believing in what you have to say because at the end of the day you are the maker of your own destiny and your own career and your own dream 
as long as you keep pushing for it and keep being consistent and persistent with this work, it's going to happen. Yeah, and I've also told, you know, some some publications I work for that will go unnamed, but I'm sure you can guess, <laughs> Yulia, uh, are, are more difficult sometimes for freelancers to break into. But I really respond to and root for writers that don't give up. Like, yes. it, because I will try to find a way to get them in. And if none of their ideas are sticking for whatever stupid internal machinations that they don't need to know about, I will have an idea that we generate in-house that I want to assign out. And I'm going to think of that writer because I'm going to be like, they're dogged, they're hungry, like they want this work and I want to work with them. So I do think that your persistence without being too annoying, like do know your limits, <laughs> right. can, can pay off for writers. Yes, I love that. And and by the way, guys, Ashley is incredible to work with. And I've had the honor of working with her and just loved every minute of it. Uh, and to, to add to your point, if you're persistent and you keep reaching out and keep sending your ideas in, editors notice that. And like you said, they're going to keep you in mind for uh, appropriate moments and appropriate assignments. So that's super important. I wanted to write about real stories that mattered and people's experiences and and things that I felt like needed a platform. And that's really kind of what became the basis for Unearth Woman is that that's sort of, I guess, maturing in my writing and that transition from these sort of diary entry type of blog posts about just all focused on my experience and my view to then sort of turning the spotlight outward and being like, you know what, I'm going, I'm much more interested now in hearing what these local people have to say or what the political situation is in Colombia or what, what the presidential election is in France, you know, and these are all stories that are important. And, and that's sort of where I am today with my writing is it's kind of evolved into this place of much more altruistic writing and giving platform and voice to other people. No, definitely. And, and I love that you bring this up because this is a sort of discussion that I often find myself in, particularly in places like Clubhouse, which, you know, I've been I've been sort of speaking and engaging a lot in that platform. And people often ask me, what is that difference between a travel blogger and a travel journalist? And I think you just put it so nicely, right? It's that focus on your personal experience somewhere and, and your personal perspective versus uncovering stories of people and places and political situations that exist somewhere. So for me, even though the lines, I feel like the lines are quite blurry in some of this, you know, because journalists can be content creators and influencers and bloggers and vice versa. But by and large, that's sort of the way I approach it as well. So I, it's great that you brought this up too. Yeah, I think that exactly to your point, the lines are definitely blurring. And I think right now where we're at sort of as a society is we're kind of at this point where it's almost unacceptable now to sort of move around the world and only look at things through your own eyes. You know, we're getting to this point as a society and as a culture that it's so important to spotlight the other experience to spotlight people that might not ever have a spotlight to give platform to marginalized communities to lift the voices of people that are discriminated against and people who have blogs who have social media following who have these platforms it's becoming more and more of a responsibility to do that and so i think you know to your point 
those lines continue to blur. Whereas I now see travel bloggers today that they do basically exactly what a travel journalist or travel writer does. They're doing reporting, they're interviewing people on the road, they're telling other people's stories, and they rarely talk about themselves and their experiences. And to that point, I see travel bloggers that are just like the ones that I saw 10 years ago, which is, you know, it's just a personal journey and personal diary of their own evolution in context of travel. I think both are completely fine. Both are appropriate. I just find in my own personal career that I've sort of outgrown that style of writing. Unearth Woman is sort of rooted in the idea that travelers are uniquely positioned to support and help women wherever they go. And the reason being is that as a traveler, as someone with a amount of influence, whether it's just telling friends and family what you did on your trip or whether it's going on Instagram and telling your followers, you have an ability to both influence how people visit a destination and also influence how people spend money at a destination. And if you're using that influence to point people in the direction of women-run businesses, to point people in the direction of female-run organizations, to shine light on local women that are doing cool things, that makes a difference. And so that's sort of the concept of Unearth Women is that it's really just about uplifting women, shining light on women-run organizations and businesses, and showing travelers how to support women when they travel. I love it. I love that so much. And for our listeners, if you haven't yet, but I'm sure you've heard of the magazine, but definitely go check it out. We're going to link to all the resources uh, in the show notes as well. And what you just said uh, really resonated with me that it's shining a spotlight not only on all of these incredible stars, women CEOs and such, but also on women who are much more accessible to us who are doing incredible things, right? I think that in our own way, all of us women are doing incredible things every day and trying to operate in a man's world and pave our own paths. And sometimes that's even more inspiring when you see women like you doing things like that. Perhaps I'm never going to interview her because she's not as accessible to most of us listening, right? But I will interview amazing women who are just like me, who are doing incredible things. And I think sometimes that's even more powerful because then you're like, I can really do this. I, I see this, you know, I see this in my path. So I love that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think, you know, at the end of the day, it's sort of showing that change can happen in both big and small ways. And I think, it's, I think so often, and I get like this too, you know, there's a, it can be very easy to sort of feel like, what's the point? Like, what's the point of doing this? Like who's reading it? Who cares? You know, what's the point of pushing this idea up the hill when something like an afar exists or travel and leisure exists and they're doing a good job at it. So why does this need to exist? And, and I think the answer is sort of what you just said. It's, you know, the point being is that you can make change in big and small ways. And even if it's not a global change, like someone who's running Facebook, it can still matter that change. And even if it's just a small community change and inspiring friends and family to support women or lifting up the voice of a, of a woman in another country who has a great story to tell or shining light on an organization that people don't know to support, that's still positive change that you're creating. And I think, you know, that's, it's worth pursuing that. 
you know, thinking about Unearthed Women today and the platform and how it's evolved, what kinds of stories are you most excited about to to publish and to create for the magazine? And are you open to working with uh, new writers that you haven't worked with before to reach out to you as well? Yeah, definitely. I mean, where things are now with Unearthed Women, we're it's a pretty exciting time because we, so we have a book coming out. We, in, in sort of during our meteoric rise, when everything was sort of happening at once, one of the things to happen was that we got a book deal with Penguin Random House. And, and that's super exciting. And this is something that we've been working on now for almost two years and it's coming out in the spring. And basically this book is, um, it's a collaborative effort that focuses on the entire thing that the entire platform of unearth women in the sense that it focuses on how to support women on your travels, how to travel as a woman today. It takes into consideration some of the things that guidebooks don't necessarily address. And also it talks about supporting women. You know, it talks about building your own feminist city guide, how to find women owned businesses, how to support women led organizations and the book really brings together all of these voices in the travel industry. And, you know, of course, as we know, there's no way to write an all-encompassing how to travel as a woman today type of book without, you know, bringing in voices of other people. I have mm-hmm. one experience. I can only speak to my experience. But we have women that talk about traveling as part of the LGBTQIA community. We have women talking about traveling as a woman of color. And so... I'm really excited about this book and I am very curious to see sort of where this takes us because obviously this book coming out from Penguin Random House, it allows us to reach a whole new audience that, you know, we may not be reaching right now. I'm eager to see sort of what doors that opens. And so because we have this book coming out, my hope, my goal, my wish is to try to release a new issue of Unearthed Woman later this year to sort of coincide with the release of the book. The idea being that if we're going to have this book coming out and people are going to now know about Unearthed Woman, that when they come to sort of, you know, investigate and see what we're about, that we'll have a new issue and we'll have some exciting new content and that there will be things there that are new and fresh for them to enjoy and hopefully fall in love with the brand. And so in a very long-winded way, the answer to your question is yes, we are currently accepting freelance submissions for the digital site. And also as we sort of look to release a new issue at some point during the year, we're going to make an announcement for opening submissions for the next print issue of the magazine. And all of that is really in an effort to sort of boost up the Unearthed Woman brand, the magazine and the website in preparation for the release of the book. Amazing. That's so wonderful to hear. And and for our listeners, we're going to link to your submission guidelines too. So take a look at those. They are pretty amazing and very detailed. So you'll get a better idea of uh, what types of stories Nikki and her team are looking for as well. How do you balance all of these different things that you're working on? And more specifically, I hear this sometimes that there is this train of thought that you have to do one thing and do it well. I know that a lot of us in this industry are actually drawn to more than one creative project because I work with publications, I have a travel company. And so I'm excited when I meet other people who have lots of different things going on. So 
my question is, what would you say to someone who feels drawn to be creating in the world in different ways, but sometimes feels like that maybe is looked badly upon? Maybe you need to focus on just one thing to be successful. What would you say to them? I think you just have to do what you're passionate about. I mean, at the end of the day, after everything that went down with Unearth Woman, after everything that we've all been living through and and many are still living through in terms of the pandemic and quarantine, I just want to do what makes me excited. What what mm-hmm. I feel, you know, gets me jumping out of bed in the morning. And you know, the fact is is that I I don't really balance it, to be honest. Whoever tells you they're balancing everything, I mean, is lying because there are there are there are weeks where I don't touch unearth women. I'm not going to lie to you. There are weeks, you know, where I that entire week I am working on other projects. I'm doing stuff for the doc. I'm doing a freelance article, whatever it is. I'm I'm right now trying to pitch a second book so I can, you know, hopefully get that in the can. So there are weeks where I'm just doing everything but Unearth Woman. And then there are weeks where all I'm doing is Unearth Woman and I'm not doing any of the other stuff. And I just, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with just going back to basics in terms of going back to what makes me happy and what makes me passionate. And again, this this is coming out of this Unearth Woman experience, the magazine, everything. What I really realized is that I just want to go back to passion Unearth Woman started as a passion project. It took off and flew into outer space because of passion, because I believed it so much and I chased it out of this world that it shot out into the stratosphere and it became what it is. And that's so exciting to me. And I want to see where these other things end up. You know, right now I'm really passionate about this documentary. I want to see where that takes me. I told you that we have the book coming out. I want to ride the momentum of this book coming out to see if I could get another book deal for another book idea that I've had. And so, you know, from the outside looking in, it might seem a little scattered. It might seem a little like, Jesus, how do you sleep at night? And I guess the short answer to your question is I sleep fine because I don't worry about balancing. I just sort of whatever the day requires, you know, if I, I wake up today and today I have, I woke up to like a bunch of emails about the doc. So today I'm focusing on the documentary tomorrow. I'll wake up and it might be a different day tomorrow. I might wake up and just work on unearth woman. And the day after I might focus on a freelance article I'm working on for cosmopolitan right now. So there, there is no balance. I'm just sort of doing what needs to be done on that day. Yes, I love that. I love that. And and I think also it's perhaps about releasing expectations that something needs to progress at a certain pace, because I think that's part of that feeling pressure that I, I'm not working on Unearthed Women this week. Every week I have to be working on something a little bit to progress it. Maybe if you release that expectation and just sort of, to your point, focus on the passion and let things unfold as they are. Which is, again, I think a more this feminine, intuitive approach to doing things, which I just love so much. Then some of that pressure is going to be released. Oh, I love that. That's wonderful. Exactly. I think the other thing, too, and this is this is a big lesson that I would love like listeners to take away, is that, you know, when you put all of your eggs in one basket, you really live and die by that basket. With Unearth Woman when it was the be all end all, when it was the only thing I was working on, the only thing that was occupying my brain space, it 
felt like life or death. It really did because I was demanding it to pay the bills. I was demanding it to, to meet the moment, you know, and, and when you put that such intense pressure on a project, particularly one that's young and and an infant and it's blossoming. I mean, it's like, if you can picture a flower, like a new flower sort of popping out of the dirt and then you just dump a giant bucket of water on it. I mean, you completely drown it. You know, it's like, you have to, you have to sort of let these things grow at their own pace and that's what I did with Unearth Woman. I jumped a giant bathtub of water on top of a fledgling flower and it drowned. And it's not dead. It's, you know, it's sprouting up again. But the lesson there being that I find, at least for me, when I don't have all my eggs in one basket, when I have other things that I'm working on that I'm excited about, the pressure is not on one thing to succeed. It's not on one thing to pay the bills. It's not on one thing to, to be my career. You know, right now I have Unearth Woman and that's a great, and that's exciting. And I love working on it, but I also have my freelance writing and I love that too. And, and I have money from that and I have stories that I'm excited on for that. And I have this documentary and that's exciting. And I'm excited to see where it takes me. So I don't feel like it spreads me thin. If anything, I feel like it keeps me mentally sound and stable because there are other there's other irons on the fire here. If the book idea that I have for the second book deal doesn't happen, okay, well then I have these other things going on. And if Unearth Woman, you know, hits a quiet streak and nothing's going on over there, well then I have the doc. And if the doc for whatever reason, I don't know, if something happens with the doc, then I have these other things. So I find it it keeps me sane to know that I don't have to live or die by one idea. I love that. I love that so much. And that's the approach that I take with my work as well. So I can totally relate to that. That's uh, beautiful. Thank you for sharing that with us. And you'll see too. I mean, look, I, I have, I've both worked with and interviewed so many people in the travel space And the one thing that I always am impressed by, because I've actually asked this exact question to other women that I've interviewed, (laughs) how do you do it all? How do you balance it all? At the end of the day, everyone is hustling and everyone is diversifying their projects and revenue streams. And that is the biggest thing. When I used to interview these travel bloggers in my early 20s, and I'd be like, how, how do you make a living off of this? And I would look for some like magical answer. And there wasn't one. They diversified their revenue stream. They weren't just travel blogging. They were travel blogging and doing an e-commerce store and freelance writing and waitressing on the side that they just didn't share that on social media. Like there's so much hustling and diversification of revenue streams here. And it makes sense. It makes sense because there are so many creative people in the world today. It's really, really hard to carve out a living off of just one creative endeavor. Yes. And, and what I always say too, is that do whatever it takes, whatever you need to do to keep building the vision that you have for your own creative life. And there is no shame in supporting yourself with all these different things. And it doesn't make you less of a creator. It doesn't make you any less valid in this field if you have all these different things going on. So I'm, I'm really glad that you brought this up. Thank you for saying that. I have to just I have to just say thank you for what you just said because when I was in my 20s <laughs> and I used to feel so guilty and like crappy about myself because I was doing 
other work beyond my passion. Like even like, even when I was in advertising and I was trying to be a freelance writer and launch my writing career and get into travel, like editorial jobs, I used to feel like, like I was wasting my time. Like I'm not a real writer. I'm not a real editor. I'm not a real journalist because I have a nine to five job at an advertising firm. And I felt crappy about it. And it took me such a long time to realize that it's because of that job It's because of the regular paycheck and the benefits and the health insurance that I got from that job that I was even able to become a freelance writer and pursue these passions. So that's something that like, I feel like especially young people who listen to this need to realize that you, you make your life so much harder when you just throw yourself into whatever it is you're passionate about and expect it to pay your bills and get you health insurance and cover the rent. It may not work that way. And that's okay. It's okay to have a nine to five or to bartend or to do whatever it takes to support yourself while you're building this passion. That's what it means to hustle. Yes. Oh my God, Nikki, I think this is like, we need to cut this and put this into every single episode. We have to put this everywhere. So people hear this all the time. That's such an important message. I I, I know. I feel like you should just like cut this part and make it the trailer. Just like, I need it to be, I need, I need it as my own ringtone because I forget this all the time. Like this is what it means to hustle. I know from experience that when you first start in the space, it can be so intimidating because, again, you know, maybe you don't have the traditional background or maybe you don't see a lot of people around you doing what you want to be doing. So beyond saying just start, which is what we say, right? How do you overcome that fear? What has helped you to make a move and to get going when you're first starting, when you don't have that big portfolio, when you don't know anybody in the industry? What would you say to these people? Just talking to other people, networking, listening and having conversations like what we're having right now. That really helps because I think that when you're starting out, the people that are at the top of the industry, they feel like they feel like gods. They feel like they're so far away and out of yes. reach and that their careers are so enviable that it just feels like to draw a line from point A to point B, from where you are to where they are, it feels daunting and it feels impossible. And that's really disheartening. But what I find is when you have these kind of conversations, like the ones we're having now, you realize that one, these are just regular people. These are regular women that a lot of them started out exactly where you're starting out or maybe even with less. I think it's easy to look at these people and think, oh, you know, they got to where they got because they have connections or they have money or they were in the right place at the right time. And, you know, that is true for a lot of people. That is very true. But there are also a lot of people that that's not the case. There are people that, you know, people I've been approached about Unearth Women and I've had people assume that I have a trust fund wow. and that I, I must have started Unearth Women because I have a trust fund and I thought, what the hell, I'm going to use it. <laughs> and when they find out that I started Unearth Women while unemployed with no savings, they're like, oh, that is different. And, it, you know, so it's sort of like, when you talk to people and you hear their origin story and you hear about where they got to where they are, 
I think sometimes it makes it feel more accessible. And if it feels more accessible, then it feels like you can do it too. And that's really kind of the takeaway from every one of these conversations, from every woman's travel conference that I've both attended and spoken at. The takeaway is always this. If I can do this, you can do it. That's just what it comes down to. There's nothing that separates the people who are listening to this and me. You know, I I don't come from money. I'm an immigrant from Colombia. I I didn't go to an Ivy League school. I went to Indiana University. I didn't do some impressive internships at Vogue or anything. I didn't even climb the ladder of editorial the way that other people do. I stumbled around New York going from job to job, balancing freelance writing while waitressing tables until I got into advertising. What I did was I just hustled and I networked and I talked to people that had careers that I wanted. And I talked to people that would take the time to to mentor me and help me. And that is what it took. And so, yeah, for the people listening to this podcast, you know, there's never going to be a invitation to start and there's never going to be a clear cut path to walk. You just kind of do it. And if you feel scared to do it, talk to other women who've done it already. And you'll see that there was nothing special about them. It just was drive. That's all it was. It was drive and passion. Hey, everyone. I'm interrupting myself for a quick second to share with you that I've created a resource just for you. If you want to publish your travel stories but don't know where to start, you'll love this resource. In it, I've included 10 steps you should start taking right now if you want to see your travel stories on the pages of your favorite travel magazines. Be sure to go to travelmedialab.com start to grab this free guide. That's travelmedialab.com start. All right, now back to this episode. I think some of my favorite stories that we've published with Pilgrim and even some that are in queue that haven't been brought fully to life yet are people that I have found, you know, a lot of them through Instagram, actually. And I read a beautiful caption that's maybe a paragraph and I'm like, okay, let's create an entire story with this. And I message them and I'm and they're like, we've never written anything. You know, we've never written anything ever. You know, we're not writers. We're this or that. And I'm like, you don't have to be a writer. Like, and I think that that's the most fundamental part of storytelling for me. It's, it's that humanity connection and it's enlivening It's enlivening people to tell their stories and it enhances that connection among people. Oh, yes. It resonates with me so much. That's, that's totally what I believe in as well. I think for me, what I always talk about is that telling stories is so natural for us as humans. You know, it's, it's such an innate quality. And we do it in different ways, perhaps, right? Somebody is better suited to do that with words, some uh, written words, spoken words, photography, perhaps. But to tell stories, this is so natural to us. And so what I always say is that, you know, if you feel, if you feel some of that, uh, if, you're, if you're unsure, if you have what it takes to tell the story that you want to tell, well, just know that you, you do have what it takes. It's innate to us as humans, you know? So that helps me when I sometimes have those moments of doubt. I think about that, that you know, it's, it's a human nature. I'm a human to most days. And so. And it's necessary for humanity. And I think, you know, particularly in the last couple of decades where we've become so much more digitized. And with that comes the abbreviation of communication. You know, we, we speak, um, we don't speak in prose so much anymore everything is edited. It's, you know, it's, 
I don't want to say superficial, but we lose sometimes that depth of explanation and communication and connectivity because I think we've, we exist in this ecosystem that is purely digital in many ways. And fast paced, you know, we're all in a hurry and everyone is busy. And I think when we can uh, divert our attention back to storytelling and having true human connection, like making eye contact and having a real conversation, you know, that's what I want to reinvigorate again, because I think, you know, so much writing on the internet too is, you know, it's, it doesn't have the narrative quality. And of course, I, I understand that there's a time and place for lists and for um, just, you know, get to the point kind of writing. But I think it's that it's that human-based memoir-focused, just the rawness of telling a story. It doesn't have to be perfect grammar. It doesn't have to have zero mistakes. You know, I've been reading a lot the last couple of months, and what I've really been paying attention to are the nuances of different author voices and how much I appreciate the imperfections. You know, I or what I consider to be an imperfection as a writer, where I'm scanning something and I'm like, oh, like you know, I I would have done this differently. Or is there a comma missing? Or it's not about perfection, though. It's about rawness. And I think with the digital world, we get so focused on editing and making things perfect and polished. And we kind of take that human quality out and by virtue of doing so that I think I really like to leave the, the raw, rigid edges of things intact, because that's what gives a voice its individuality. And that's what we want to preserve. Yeah, so that's so beautiful. And I, and I think it shows up in a lot of the stories that you tell in the magazine, for sure. So how do you go about doing that, right? So you said you had a roster of people that you knew, storytellers or people who you thought would have great stories that didn't necessarily consider themselves storytellers. How do you go about creating something out of nothing? Well, I would say nothing truly begins with nothing. Like the substance, even if it's not material, is often so, so pronounced that, you know, I'm so fixated on that. That's my focal point. Like if I see the substance, it's, there's already so much to work with just from that. You know, for example, you know, one of our biggest stories with Pilgrim and one that we published at our launch was the Felicity Buckwinder series. And the author of that series, um, Jessie, she is an incredible photographer. So she is a, a storyteller in that sense, in the visual way. And she's explored at the time she had explored some kinds of writing, but she had never really published like a long form story. And really that story was centered on her mother's voice. So we were taking the journal entries of her mother who had passed away when Jessie was a teenager. And so we had just this wealth of imagery of journal entries. And then we had Jesse's voice. And then we had Haley's voice, who was the editor of that piece. And, you know, how do we merge these three things together to create like a cohesive, beautiful story arc? And it took a lot of work and finagling for that one in particular, because there was so much material. But, you know, originally when I was courting Jesse and I was trying to encourage her, like, we really want to publish this. The story is there. I think it was maybe a little overwhelming um, because you know, how do you tell such a big story? And, you know, when you when you don't necessarily consider yourself a writer in a given period of time, but it was all there and we knew it was there. It was just a matter of shaping it and finessing it and kind of organizing and a lot of back and forth. I think, I don't know, I think for me, it's really natural to focus on that substance. And then, you know, the writing for me is natural as well. So I can help someone formulate, you know, a piece from even just one line, you know, there was, um, you know, a, a writer whose story we've not published yet. In fact, actually, she's not a professional writer, but she's a, she's a mushroom forager. She's obsessed with mushrooms and she's a traveler and she does kind of the freelance patchwork lifestyle. She does a lot of different things, but not necessarily writing. But she published a caption that was about reading a book in a bookstore in a foreign country, like just skinning or skimming it. And 
the way that she wrote just these three sentences about that experience, I immediately messaged her and I'm like, let's turn this into a bigger story. And it's become like a work in progress where we're back and forth. So I think it's just a matter of like identifying that, that little, that thread, that thread that can be woven into like a much more beautiful, bigger tapestry. And, you know, when you see that in someone, it inspires them and it encourages them. And it also causes a lot of reflection, self-reflection where they're like, wow, like I didn't necessarily realize that I, this was a story, you know, in itself. And actually a story that we'll be publishing in the next couple of weeks, a similar thing. We found a, a husband and wife or a partner couple, they're, they're traveling photographers. They live on the road. And they had this amazing story about this old man that they found painting a landscape on the side of the road, like in his, you know, old, tattered, rusty camper or camper van, whatever it was. And they wrote one paragraph. And so we worked with them to turn that one paragraph into an entire story that is so touching and so compelling. And it's just a micro moment of the human experience where you're on the road and you share this, you know, it seems like a light conversation. The old man clearly inspired them because they wrote a short caption about him. But I don't think that they saw the the breadth of that piece and how it could grow to become something bigger. And so I think that's what me and Rachel, our current editor with Pilgrim, you know, do with people is we see that fragment or that micro moment that could just, you know, be carved into something larger. And we work with people to bring that to life. God, I love that. And so many questions I already have for you. But first of all, I think this will be really interesting for our listeners to, to hear is how do you know if the story is there or not? Because as our listeners and people in our community, you know, in, in our circle membership and, and, and the class, we, we often talk about, you know, putting pitches together, approaching magazines, and is there a story in here? And sometimes it's really difficult to say if there is a story in here or not. Because it sounds like you have a really great eye or nose or whatever for it. I mean, yeah, honestly, I, you know, I wish that I had a, a, some kind of compelling wisdom to share on that. I think so much. So much of it for me, I feel like is intuition. Um, and it might also be kind of my narrative imagination. You know, I'm really good at creating entire narratives in my head, which can be a blessing and a curse. <laughs> but it's like, you know, I see, you know, something that's so beautiful and just one line, for example, or, you know, you watch a moment unfold. And I, I don't know, like I could create a novel out of nothing. And so I, I'm not, I think that that's just kind of like an intuition based thing for me. I will say I did a few years ago a writing workshop in Zanzibar uh, with a couple of journalists that I think are incredible women. And the focus of this um, this writing workshop was duality of the human experience. So, you know, how we can be two opposite things at a single time or feel completely two different emotions on the spectrum of feeling at a given time. One of the writing exercises that we did was we did a free writing exercise. They would give us a prompt and we didn't have much time. So it was like a very loose, you know, maybe we would end up with 200 words or something. Well, then what we would do, and so of course, that's just, a, that's a framework, right? That's kind of a blueprint. So what we would do later is we would go back and we would add within that, you know, beginning to end that we already wrote, we would expand, 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 expand. And so we would go through what we had already written, which seemed like a very lean, maybe even meaningless piece of prose that we had put together. And then we would create like this beautiful, full, complete story out of it. And by complete, you know, there's not a defined word count that makes something complete. I think a story is complete when it's well told and it completes itself. I don't think that there is a word count that can achieve that. But it was a really interesting exercise for me. And it's something that I've continued to practice since that writing workshop where, you know, as a writer, I think sometimes, you know, you're driving down the road and all of a sudden it's like something comes to your head and you have to like get it out. And so I'll pull over and I'll put something into a note, just keywords. A lot of times my writing is a list. Um, the number of lists that I have from my travels that are 
just completely random keywords that I know will prompt a larger memory when I go back to revisit that. I kind of use that as the same kind of framework where I go in and it's like, okay, I can expand on all of these keywords and then you have a complete piece of work. And so I think, I think maybe the beauty of observation is what makes something complete. Because if you have that micro moment that you can fixate on, if you can draw recollections of all the things that surrounded that, from a sensory perspective, from an awareness perspective, I think presence is what makes a story complete. Because if you're completely disconnected from a moment, you're not going to have all the elements that make it complete. So I think maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's the art of being present and having the ability to recollect details because you were so present in a period of time to recognize that there's so much more complexity to a moment. It's not, you know, everything is three-dimensional, four-dimensional, five-dimensional. If we pay attention to the complexity of, yeah, the complexity and the layers of our experiences, I think the stories are endless. So many authors that I love their material, but they weren't, you know, they weren't successful until they were dead. And I think that that's a really important thing to remember that we do have this misconception that, you know, you have to create you know, constantly, all day, every day, you write or you paint or whatever your, you know, whatever your medium is. And, you know, you need to be successful at it to be able to call yourself something. And I think imposter syndrome is also a big part of our culture. And I've struggled with it at different times. And, you know, it's funny, I, I don't consider myself a photographer, but I do often shoot my own photos. I love photography. I have a great camera, but I would never call myself a photographer. And sometimes people will introduce me, Ashley's a writer and a photographer, and I correct them. And, you know, I've had other, you know, people that I've looked up to in the industry who will say to me, but you've sold photos and you've been hired to like cover events or to do street photography of a place. And I'm like, well, yeah, but I wouldn't feel comfortable shooting a wedding. And that's kind of always what I say. That's how I caveat it. Um, I wouldn't want to be the person that's responsible for having perfect wedding photos. And you know, and I've been corrected. Well, so you're not a wedding photographer, like you're kind of a humanity photographer. And it's funny how we get these narratives in our minds that we are not something because we think that we have to achieve X, Y, and Z, or we have to produce so much material, or we have to be given a particular accolade. And I just don't think that that's true. And I think those self-limiting beliefs are really, they can be very devastating. You know, I, I think you don't have to be published to call yourself a writer. You don't have to be, you don't have to have an exhibit to call yourself a photographer. I mean, the beauty of being an artist of any kind is that we're constantly evolving our art. And, you know, I look back at some of my early work that I was paid for and it makes me cringe sometimes. And I'm just like, I can't believe I wrote that that way. Or why am I so ellipses happy? I used to use a lot of ellipses. And it's just, it's funny, you know, we are our own harshest critics. And, you know, anyone that tells you otherwise who's within the field, I think that that is motivated by ego. And I think, you know, ego is, you know, it can be the biggest blocker that we have for anything. So I think as long as you commit to your, your art in some capacity, you are that thing. And you can be many things. You don't, you know, you don't have to be just a writer to be a writer. I consider myself lots of different things. And I consider my, there's, there's dreams I have that are not, you know, uh, that are not connected to what I'm doing right now. And today that I'm going to eventually be that thing. I want to be a children's book author. I really want to shoot album covers, completely random dream I have. And I'm not those things yet, but I, I will, I'll become those things because I want those things. What would you say to someone who feels like they have a story inside or stories inside, but for one reason or another that we already discussed, you know, like imposter syndrome, all those other things that tell us we're not a writer, we're not mm -hmm. a photographer. What would you tell to them? What would you say to that person to try to encourage them to 
go out and reach out to Pilgrim magazine, to other magazines, write your stories on your blog. You know, what would you say to them? I would say, um, and I do say, I think it's important to one, have an ally. Like I think having an ally is really, really powerful. I think there were so many times that I was stifled by my own self-doubt that I just wasn't sure how to move forward. It wasn't, it wasn't always so much that I didn't believe in my work or that I didn't have a powerful or compelling story to tell, but maybe I just didn't know the next steps. Like I wasn't experienced enough to, you know, to know what to do next. And so, so much of my success has been based on, or maybe not based on, it's been enlivened by people who believed in me. But in order to have people believe in you, you have to be willing to share part of yourself. You have to be willing to share a little bit of vulnerability, a little glimpse into what you're working on, not feel burdensome by doing that. And I think that was one thing that stifled me as well is that I didn't want to burden people with um, questions or with needing support or asking someone to read my work. And of course, like we, you know, you always want to be respectful of someone's time and have reasonable expectations. But, you know, I'm, I know that because of how much other people invested in me and their willingness to help me, you know, perfect a piece or introduce me to editors or introduce me to, you know, different people that would be, you know, just powerful additions to my story. I'm willing to do that for other people. You know, like if I see, you know, that promise in someone, and I mean, I think that, you know, evidenced by the fact I launched a publication in which we've got seasoned writers that have written for New York Times and National Geographic, but we also have people who've never written anything beyond maybe a caption. And like, that's what we want. And so I think feel feel empowered to reach out to someone and just say, hey, I love your work. And I've been inspired because of your work. And I would was wondering if you would be willing to read something or point me in the right direction. You know, it, it's asking for help is, I think, necessary, especially in a world in which, you know, sometimes our success is defined by who we know. And that's an unfortunate thing. But like, you, there's so many people who are willing to help. And I would say also, like, you know, I started Contemporary Pilgrim because I didn't want to sell some of my most prized stories to other publications. But because I started that, it gave me a platform. And was I, I made no money from it. It wasn't, you know, it was an art thing for me. This was a production of art. It wasn't monetized. I wasn't earning a living, but it was a place where I, I had a guaranteed home for my voice. And I would encourage other people to do the same. You know, my, my work there wasn't perfect, but it was a place that I could capture and gather all the material from my journeys and from my connections with humans. And, you know, from there it grew and it blossomed. And now it's a community that I don't even have time to write for myself a lot of the times, but I have lots of other writers. So I would encourage people to, if you don't have an outlet, create one, you know, it doesn't have to be perfect. And so much of my old writing I've repurposed, you know, I've gone back and, you know, my voice has matured, my writing style has changed some, and I I've gone back and, that work has almost become material to build from, you know, like it's kind of in the archives and I can add to it over time or change it or, or pull things from it. And I think as long as you're writing, it's not a wasted exercise or creating whatever you're creating, you know, it's not a wasted exercise. Yeah. Beautiful advice. Um, and I, I, concur to every single word that you said i think it's uh, it's really important to have allies to have support and yeah putting putting your work out there and having a home for it that doesn't depend on the on the whims and ebbs and flows of other people and their platform i think that's a mm -hmm. that's a great great suggestion as well Thank you so much for listening to our show today. I hope you enjoyed this first part of our Editor Insights mini-series. And if so, I want to ask you to please take a minute right now to support our show. 
You can do that by leaving us a rating or a review on the Apple Podcast app. It takes just literally a couple of seconds to do that. Or by sharing this episode with your friends, colleagues, or posting about it on social media. It really, really helps us get discovered by more listeners just like you that would find our show helpful. And it means so much to me. I read every single review we get and I take them very seriously because I want to create a great show for you. So if you've been inspired by something you heard today or in any other episode of our show, please take just literally less than a minute right now to support it by leaving us your rating or review. That is one of the best ways you can help us out. And if anything that you heard today resonated with you particularly well, be sure to go and check out full episodes with each of these editors where they go even deeper into their path to where they are today. You can find the links to those episodes in the show notes. In the second part of this Editor Insights mini-series, out next time, you're going to hear from Sarah Khan, Editor-in-Chief for Condé Nast Traveler Middle East, and Lauren Keith, a signing editor at Lonely Planet. Thanks again for listening, and I see you next time.